All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckaholics? Yeah, what the fuckaholics? How you guys doing? What's happening? Did I mention today on the show, uh, the actor Clark Gregg is here. You might know Clark from his um, The New Adventures of Old Christine, from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, from Bits and Movies. He's an interesting guy, got an interesting frequency, interesting vibe, interesting focus and energy, interesting actor. Uh, I was excited to talk to him because I always like him when I see him in things, and he's one of those guys that can do comedy and serious pretty seamlessly between the two, and he was also an Atlantic theater guy. You know, started in Mammoth's operation. So I kind of wanted to learn a little bit about that. I, I, I did have somewhat of a David Mammoth uh, fascination for many years. I found him to be very compelling. I don't know, as we get older, some of those fascinations, some of those obsessions wane a bit. And you, you just see uh, people as people who are getting older. And I, I just haven't checked in with uh, David Mammoth in many years. I know he's gotten a little angrier, a little Jewier, a little uh, to one sidier. I guess that's the word. Look, I don't fucking know. I don't know. We also have Dan Pashman on the show from the Sporkful podcast. Dan and I, I developed these relationships with some people. I know Dan a long time, and we're doing that a little more on the show where I got a guy that I like to talk to just about bullshit and comes in and we just talk about bullshit. If you listen to the show, you know how how me and Dan operate. I do want to pay a little lip service to uh you know the new season of Marin and to uh, uh jason molina and to it like i talked about a song called ride on molina by rivulets uh, a couple weeks ago and then i got some feedback that you know i didn't uh you know it's about jason molina i know who it's about and i i love jason molina it's a sad story that jason molina story but he did leave some great music i listened to the song from uh, the magnolia electric company and there's a song on there called Farewell Transmission that I listened to just like I did right on Molina. And they, they seem to be intricately connected. And that was Jason's last record. And I do believe that he died very young at 39, or I think, uh, from alcohol-related problems. And that's another thing I kind of want to talk about. I, I know people are responding to the, you know, to the new season of Marin. Uh, some people are very excited about the change in narrative. Some people were concerned. Some people find it a little painful. But uh, I, I, I will tell you, not unlike uh, recovery, that it does get uh, better emotionally and for me. And uh, I am okay. I did not relapse on painkillers. I do not want to uh, relapse on painkillers. I'm, uh, I'm okay with that. I don't want to take painkillers or drink alcohol. Uh, but it, it, it can happen, and it happens to a lot of people. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, I, I don't want it to be a, you know, a heavy Monday. So I'm thrilled at the response uh, to uh, to Marin season four. It was a, a very exciting thing to do. It was a a bold thing to do, and uh, I just want to make sure that people understand uh, not only that I did not relapse, but but also that I went out of my way to respect addiction and to respect recovery in the sense that there was no way that I would allow it to be trivialized in any way and I wanted it to be as as real as I possibly could muster emotionally uh, and you know within the, the context of a comedy. I do not represent AA. I am not a spokesperson for AA. There's plenty of ways to get sober. 12 steps can be a little daunting for some people, a little alienating, a little cult-like, but uh, look, 
it, it, it changed the way I think about things. And, and however you need to figure out that you have no control over whatever it is that is destroying your life is what you need to do. And that's, that, that's the, that, that is the crux of it. But I do know, this is the thing that I'm getting to, is that, you know, some people are very, you know, protective of the program, very protective of AA, and I knew this was going to be uh, an issue a bit. You know, I'm very public about my sobriety. I'm also very public about, you know, not being a spokesperson, not representing the program. Look, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I do know it's free. I do know there's all kinds of meetings in every fucking town in this country, and you can go to one and just sit there and not say nothing to nobody. So I get this email. Subject line, no subject line. WTF, what the fuck is with all the AA stuff you used in the show? You should be a better custodian of our literature. Go ahead and make fun of the rehab bullshit. You could have done it without showing the text in conjunction with your show. Have been a big fan, Fred L. There are people that are very protective of uh, the system and the traditions of AA, and I understand that. I understand the tradition. The tradition is, uh, you know, it shouldn't be involved in radio or film. It should not be promoted. It should not be involved. You know, it's an anonymous culture, an anonymous program, and you need to protect the program. I get it. So I wrote back sensitively, uh, kick me out. And then I I thought better of that. (laughs) And then I wrote again, it all helps people. The program is culturally relevant. I didn't mention AA. I do more outreach and get more feedback and help more people by being openly sober. I don't claim to be a representative of the program uh, or a spokesman or even that specific. I understand the tradition. I also understand the problem. You be the custodian. You are, I will be what I am, and the program will go on forever. And even right now, I shouldn't be talking about it, but there's a lot of people out there that need help, and I do know that these meetings are free. They ask nothing of you other than to show up at you know because you're you're in a bad place. But like right after I, I got his email, like I get a lot of emails about this, you know, and I never set out on this show to help anybody do anything but myself in a lot of ways, just to speak openly about what's going on with me and, and whatever my struggles are. And obviously that helps people. When you hear other people talk about stuff, that's how people, you know, feel connected and, and, and feel new things in their brains and, and make new decisions and listen to new things and have a life that is engaged, you know, to other people. So there are two emails here. It's hard, man. It's hard. Life is hard on its own. But I got this email, which is heartbreaking. Mark, I'm watching the newest episode of your show. It's very entertaining. My wife and I have been fans for years. We lived outside of Fort Worth in a senior stand-up in San Antonio in Oklahoma City. She passed away two weeks ago on April 20th at the age of 37. I don't know why I'm writing this to you right now, except to say that I don't know what to do. Ultimately, alcohol took her life, and I am drinking as I write this. Everyone in my family avoids the reality of how and why she died. I don't have anyone to talk to because I think they all blame me for not fixing her. I don't expect a response to this email. I just feel like I need to write down my guilt. I am considering AA and grief counseling, but I am having a hard time getting through each day. I'm going to go back to watching your show, and she and I were very much looking forward to it after the last season. She's not here anymore. And... So yeah, I want yeah, I want that guy to get help, and you know, and, and you know, I just want generally, I just want people to know that look, it may or may not work, uh, whatever it is that you do, but Jesus, you know, try, try something, try. Don't fall into yourself. Don't insulate yourself. You know, 
there's definitely help out there. And then this one came right after that. Hey, I'm a what the furniture mover other shit. I feel the need to say that you helped me look up. I had lost hope for about 15 years in my random drug addictions. You helped me believe that there is something else out there for me. I have tons of hobbies and talents and I've recently re-began investing my thoughts and time into my new future. I'm putting eggs in all my baskets and I have hope. You help me feel like it, it's at least possible. Thank you. You're welcome. It's hard. And that's one of the reasons why I did this season like I did it. Could happen to anybody. I still just come out here to the garage and do this thing. And I live my little life with my little neurotic problems. So when I get these emails of the effect the show has on people or that, it's just like I want to share them with you because there is some sort of community and there is some sort of you know real struggle going on out there for a lot of people. But I wanted to read this. What the fuck an Canadian surviving wildfires in Fort McMurray? Also, the uh, the term "what the fuck anucks" another for you Canadians. Hey, Mark, if you haven't heard, there was a wildfire that pretty much took out the entire town of Fort McMurray, Alberta. Population eighty thousand. Myself, along with my wife, four month old daughter, and dog, had to evacuate from our home without any notice, as our backyard and surrounding area was set ablaze in a matter of minutes. We could not find our cat, and sadly, had to leave her behind. While getting the family in the car safely and pulling away, watching our house slash neighborhood go up in flames. I just wanted you to know that your podcast is helping us get through this these difficult times, letting our minds fade out and thinking about something else for a change. Keep up the good work, Mark, and thanks again. Loyal Fucknadian, uh, Kevin. Jesus Christ. That thing was brutal. And I just thought I'd, I'd take it upon myself here to say that if you want to help out, there's a lot of people that have been displaced. Redcross.ca uh, is the Red Cross in Canada. You can help out. And the EERSS.org, Edmonton Emergency Relief Services. But uh, just know that, you know, whatever your day is today, most of you, it's going to be okay. And uh, I, I didn't want it to be a downer, and I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm okay. Things are, you guys, most of you are good, but I just want you to know there's, there's help on the way. There's help available. You, you know, there is a way to, to sort of uh, kind of you know, do what you need to do to get by, but also to lead a little better life. Jesus Christ, what's becoming of me? Oh, my God. My heart is overwhelming me. Jeez. Let's, talk to, let's get to me and Dan Pashman. If you haven't heard Dan Pashman on here before, we go way back. We used to work together on the radio and argue about bullshit. Now Dan has turned that into a job. You can hear him doing his thing on his podcast, The Sporkful. He just had Maria Bamford on, so you can go check that out. And when he's out here in L.A., I always like to have him come over so we can pick up uh, where we left off. It's an ongoing <laughs> an ongoing argument about bullshit with me and Pashman. So this is me and Dan. Yeah, you got you got pretty excited there, Dan. Yeah, yeah you're like, oh, yeah, and you ran into the house. <laughs> so now you've got a plan. Yeah, and we, I didn't have a plan. It wasn't a plan. I didn't have a plan until it, it appeared into my head just now. We're drinking coffee, and you're like, oh shit, I got an idea. We were talking about the taste of the coffee, right. okay, and the ratios of coffee to water, and right. Water temperature, and right. And we were nerding out, and we did this episode of the Sporkful a little while ago about um, how sound affects the eating and drinking experience uh-huh. and there's an experiment you can I want to eat my way away from your voice right now <laughs> <laughs> 
This could be I a did. new diet. <laughs> I, just, I just know that there's food inside. Right. And I'm listening to you. <laughs> so what's why'd you get the computer? Okay, so so uh it turns out that the background music that you're listening to at a given time can affect how something tastes. Really? Yes. Is that proof? Do you have proof? Yes. Is there proof? Well, we're going to do an experiment right Valid now. Valid proof? Okay, fine. Ba- Charles Spence, researcher at University of uh, Wait, Oxford uh, in England. Are you going to play copywritten music? <laughs> no. Okay. Charles gave me the per- permission to play this music. Okay. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to- Should I take my nicotine lozenge out? Yes. All right. Take a sip of coffee and hold the coffee in your mouth. And as you do, I want you to really think carefully, and listeners can do this at home as well, Think carefully about how sweet or people bitter. People have that kind of time. Right. <laughs> people like me and Dan. Yeah, hold you. you want us to give you a right. second? Because yeah, this podcast is really for people who are short on time. Come on now, Mark. <laughs> Do you have a second? Do you time. have your coffee? Go get your coffee. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'll, you know, take a cup. T- take, take a sip and hold the coffee in your mouth for a second and really um, think about how sweet or bitter the coffee tastes. Okay. Hold it in your mouth. Think about it. Try to give it sort of a rating in your mind of how sweet or bitter the mm-hmm. coffee is mm-hmm. okay do i do i need a number rating or just no but just just in my try mind? to peg it in your mind right okay now i want you to take another sip and hold it in your mouth and keep it in your mouth as i play this music okay play Go. it mm-hmm. how did that affect the flavor it dulled it okay all right interesting you ready for the next why one? is there a right answer uh, I wouldn't say right answer, but um, but take another, put the coffee back in your mouth, take another sip. I'm drinking this fast now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> take a little sip, hold the coffee in your mouth, think about how sweet or bitter it is, and listen to this. Yeah. What happened? It made it a little tarter, a little sharper, a little like, you know, it lit it up a little bit. Like the first one kind of made it, flattened it. And the second one kind of sparked it up a little. Okay. Yeah. You see that it made a difference. Okay. So how does how does this apply to my fucking life? <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to look out for in the future? Well, t- what do we learn? Typically, lower pitch music will make things. This works with chocolate too. Lower pitch music will make it taste more bitter, and higher pitch music will make it taste a little sweeter. Mm. And and some scientists think that this may be a way to like get people to taste, make things taste sweeter or fattier with, uh, while reducing the amount of sugar in it. But does this mean that you now become the guy at Starbucks who when they have something on the on the music inside, you're like, hey, you know, this music's really <laughs> making your already bitter, burnt, shitty coffee really taste even worse. Like, I can't drink it. So could you turn off the Kurt Vial, please? <laughs> and put up something a little more upbeat? Yeah, this could make you into that person. Mm. But like you know, it's something that restaurants should think about. I just think it's interesting. Oh, so that, now like, we're doing this for restaurants, maybe, or for the way people eat. You know, like it could it allow, allow people to make healthier food that still tastes as decadent as, as ever. Oh, I see. So your approach is this is a healthy approach. So if you pick the right sort of droning, shitty music, <laughs> you might be able to eat something that is not as good as you as it as it should be, and it'll taste better if you're sitting there alone eating, say, you know, diet ice cream. But the music is like, <laughs> like this is sweeter. Right. Like imagine if you opened up your shitty diet ice cream and you, when you opened up the lid, you heard this. Pretty I've, soon you just have an association that it was sweeter and it would taste better to you. 
Yeah, and I'd also want each flavor to have a different... Right, right. That's good branding right there. What what are you doing out here? I'm going to a conference. Uh, That was the main reason. Um, What kind of conference does Dan Pashman go to? Well, this is International Association of Culinary Professionals, and they're having a special panel on food podcasters. Mm. So I was one of the food podcasters they asked to come. Are you a preeminent food podcaster now? Uh, I guess you could probably say that. Sure, Mm. I'll take that. Sure. I I was asking. <laughs> well, if, like it's uh, you know it's awkward to say it for yourself. If someone said to you, "Are you a preeminent you comedy want, podcast?" You want me to do it more radio like? Well, how oh, would, so here I'll do it more radio like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you're because as a preeminent food podcaster, you're you're you've been asked to be on a panel. Yes, well, that's quite right, Mark. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do you? What's going on? So uh, yeah, I mean I've been uh, been pretty busy. We just finished up this. this uh, I'm starting to tell you in your house this big. Um, series we did i would love to hear your take on it about um food and culture and race we mm. did it on the sporkful and you were you feels were, dicey feels it already feels like we're gonna get in trouble well exactly like are you calling food names well it's funny because <laughs> leading up to the series a lot of people were saying to me they're like are you nervous mm-hmm. and i was like i wasn't nervous mm-hmm. until everyone started asking me that, yeah, yeah you know but you were playing me that linda ronstadt record in your house and talking about how so. like like why doesn't like what you were saying, like it, like it, it just, like why is why is why does this sound so fucking good? Whereas if you listen to new folk music, like it was Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Ponies, which was a folk trio, where she was just too big, a, I think, a talent for folk music in general. Not that there aren't talented folk people, but she was too. There was something about her that obviously was destined to go somewhere else. But even the folk music sounded, you know, better than what I would hear today. And my argument was with a lot of stuff, and this is not being old guy or or at all. Uh, sort of closed mind is that they were closer to the source it was a new thing you know like young white kids doing folk music you know kind of uh that that first or maybe towards the end of that first wave of folk revival so closer to the source i think was what you picked up on right right okay and well and so like this is one of the things we talked about in the in the series is like what happens when uh people start messing with food that isn't um isn't in food from a culture other than their own? Yeah, sometimes it's confusing, right? Or people that want to fuse other cultures with, right. you know, like uh, this is Polish tapas. No, right. <laughs> that, that's just a, that's a pierogi with the wrong sauce on right, it. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but like, what happens when, uh, especially when it's a white person mm-hmm. who is messing with and changing around a food associated with a. a, a people of color well having had experience with this myself in that you know there was a period there where i was so taken with indian food that i wanted to make it and you know back when i lived in san francisco i've gone through a couple waves of this actually where you want to try to do something like you get the uh i got mudhar jaffe's uh, book and i also got uh, uh to count what's her name uh the other big uh, indian chef the old school oh, uh, one julie, julie sani yes julie sani thank you then you run into this weird thing as a you know non-indian person who went to these restaurants you can make a tandoori marinade but you don't have a tandoori oven and you do not have the the skill set that would enable you to make it authentically. And what makes something good that is a cultural cuisine or an ethnic cuisine is that you're usually dealing with a kitchen that is equipped and has been seasoned to make that kind of, of food and people that know what they're doing to make it. So to really capture that's going to be different. So a lot of times, I guess my point is that as somebody who's trying to to do it themselves, it's obviously going to be inferior or different because... You can't make it authentically just by nature of who you are unless you've studied it. But in that analogy, you are the modern day folk singer mm-hmm. because you are like too far removed from the source 
to render it well. Whereas Linda Ronstadt is someone who maybe is uh, an Indian American first generation immigrant whose parents were born in India, who grew up still traveling to India, whose parents cooked Indian food in their house. Like it's no, part I think of their- I think that's true, but I think the source is different because that's sort of a time thing. Like 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 cuisine or 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 traditional cooking is something that you know is what it is like it'll stay the same if somebody makes it correctly whereas music is sort of like things change you know amplification guitars you know people's distance but from food it changes to be you know, but they, not really new equipment gets discovered recipes yeah, but, get changed people move around the world and they combine fine but i'm just saying that the, the analogy the source is always going to be ever present with cuisine whereas with with music a lot of those people die you know, right. like the source is dead now. Do you understand? Right. Like the 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 cuisine has a life of its own. Interesting. Does that make sense to you? Yes. I mean, I, I don't a hundred percent agree because I feel like I oh, think here I, we go. <laughs> what, what, is, what is so hard to understand? Well, I, I just think that there's you know we I think we have this idea that like whatever the present is that there's this sometimes there's a sensibility like oh it's always been this way and now someone's coming along and changing it. You know, like people in Mexico, some Mexican people would say that mole is like has been mole in Mexico for thousands of years but it hasn't been the same for thousands of years and actually yeah, some of it has some, some root ingredients have been but 50% of the ingredients of mole came from other parts of the world they came from south asia Fine. They came okay from so Europe. let's say so, uh, let's say 100 years that's still longer than you know than than but, Woody Guthrie but there lived. are many restaurants right but, but the point is that like which one was the true one the one that's really hard to digest <laughs> Have you been to Oaxaca? Have you eaten real mole? I have not. It's a little rough going, dude. Comes with a side of grasshoppers. <laughs> I'm not fucking kidding. I ate them all. I oh, enjoyed yeah? it. I took it in. I had mole in Oaxaca. And, and like, there's, like, a, I think that original mole has a, a, a fairly big lard component. So I think that some things are shifted because of availability and just sort of like, who the fuck wants to cook with lard? It's but, but rough. That's, but that's another issue. Is like, so let's say, so one of the things we talk about in this series, you know, Rick Bayless? Yeah. Famous celebrity chef. I like his restaurants. Okay. I love his one. I actually love his restaurant in the Chicago airport. Okay. <laughs> he does the Mexican food, right? Yes, the torta, yes. The torta restaurant. I look forward to going to Flying American to Chicago so I can go get uh, the his Cubano sandwich of torta. <laughs> I'm sure he'll appreciate that. I've talked to him on Twitter. Oh, have you? I've eaten his other restaurants. Yeah. He's good. And his restaurants are very popular. And, like, and he's someone who has studied deeply Mexican food and culture and spent trust years him living there. Right, I trust right. Him um, but there are also those Mexicans and Mexican Americans who are like, screw this guy, Rick Bayless. He's ripping off our food. He's getting rich off of our. Are food. there those people? Yes, there like are there's a people. there's a unified front against Rick Bayless. Unified is a strong word, but but he has faced a persistent criticism throughout his career um, that he, especially because he is very rich. And so on, on top of that, and, and he puts himself forward as an authority in this cuisine. He makes a lot of money off the cuisine. Yeah. And there are people who feel like there are a lot of Mexican grandmothers who can cook as well or better as he can, and they get nothing. But does he ever bring up the fact that like he's got Mexicans cooking in the kitchen? <laughs> he does. It, it, oh, it, God, it, that's horrible. Right. The, you, Pedro's making this stuff. Yeah. But I, but I asked him in the interview like if he ever thinks that it's to his advantage to be white. Mm-hmm. And there was like this really awkward, long silence. And then he said he had never thought about it. Really? He changed his life. <laughs> now, now he's going to quit cooking Mexican food. Yeah, unlikely. Yeah. But he, he wasn't happy with uh, some of the line of questioning. Really? You got yeah. you got controversial. Well, that, that's the thing is like I go up to, sometimes I go up to um, 
to Cacao Mexicatessen up on Colorado, which does a very refined, uh, in a way, refined Mexican food. But it's it's Mexican-owned and operated, but they've taken it to another level. Like, they have duck tacos and things like that. But they make all their tortillas there. But then if I want to get uh, dirty Mexican food, and I say that with love, I go down to Jarache Azteca where they make the Jaraches, but they make them from scratch as well. That's a like a sandal-shaped uh, thicker tortilla where right. you put stuff on it but it's definitely a different uh, experience but they're both mexican but, but what's interesting is the way you said that you know the, the, the duck taco place has quote unquote taken it to another level well they have because they they yeah they do they've added a level of sophistication they to have it. yes but, but but in a very mexican way okay but it, but it, but i it's think got nothing to do with rick bayless <laughs> maybe it's, it's 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 a statement against it's actually that's he's spearheading the movement against rick bayless okay the guy at cacao I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's something we explore in this series. I think, I think cuisine evolves and that people bring stuff. Like, I've had amplified and, and, you know, like, it's like barbecue. Like, now every asshole in the world opens a goddamn barbecue restaurant, but I'll only eat barbecue at a couple of places in Austin and a couple of places in the in the more formal South because I feel that they're authentic places. So if you want authentic food, you know, you can go to these places that take it to a, d- a different level if they're rooted in the authenticity of the cuisine. And I think somebody like Bayless, I trust him to have done his homework and I like his food. And, you know, yes, it makes me a little uncomfortable that, you know, maybe he's making a lot of money, but in the sense that, like, I understand the issue. But the thing is, is that, you know, he did his research, he respects the cuisine. And I would imagine that, you know, not unlike anywhere else, that if you go to a fancier Mexican place, I would imagine like um, some Mexicans would go to Rick Bayless and goes, this isn't good. Why do you ruin it with this thing? What is this? What is this sauce? Right. It's like Jew food. You know, you don't want any just anybody, you know, making a, a Jewish soup. You know what I mean? Right. But right. I, I don't think that there's, you know, we didn't set out to have like a clear yes or no, right or wrong answer. I think it's complicated. I think it's true that food is always evolving. Yeah. Like you say. And um, I don't. I, I think even the term authentic is kind of problematic because what's the one true authentic? And th- I talked to one cookbook author who said she was trying to do a recipe for a cookbook about this this Indian dish, rasam, and sh- and she couldn't get the people and her family to agree on what the recipe was. So she's like, so what's the authentic way to do it? You know. Well, the, but there's authentic things that are carried down traditionally, and uh, who the hell knows? Four generations ago, if uh, your grandma decided to replace schmaltz with butter. You know, they, it's just the way it's made in your family. So right, but I the think- point is that things are always changing. So I agree that things are always changing, yes. Hmm. But ways, what, what I learned in this series is that, like, food is such a stand-in for identity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the tensions that exist just over general issues of inequality mm-hmm. manifest themselves in food. Mm-hmm. And... The, and, and Foods assimilate into American culture in the at this in the in in parallel with the people who bring them, mm-hmm. and so, for instance, Mark, why do you think it is that we pay more for Italian food than Mexican food typically? Um, that's a good question. I'm going to go with uh, ingredients. Well, I talked to a professor who studied this, and he said that it is more because we tend to uh, we have a perception of a certain person. Like, like we we think of Mexicans oh, as being relatively impoverished, right. impoverished new immigrants, right? So we downgrade our perception of their culture yeah. and their food. Italian immigrants are, are, have have assimilated, 
And so they... Uh, but it's sort of like the... But I get what you're saying, but it's sort of like the difference between Hirachi Azteca and Cacao. It's like Cacao, you're going to spend a little change. You're going to spend some money. Hirachi Azteca, I, me and three friends can go and spend $12. Right. But a Cacao would be like 45 right? But it's also the same. It's sort of like I could go get a pizza and a shitty sub... <laughs> For, for $7, whereas if I go to uh, Asteria Angelini on Beverly, I'm going to spend 70 Yes, but I think that in most places in America, that higher-end Mexican place doesn't exist yet. But there's also a difference in cuisines. You know, there is high-end Mexican food, you know, like a, a mole dish or a chicken dish, uh, the stuff that isn't tortilla-based. Right. There's that, too, that we're talking about. You know, you get a, you know, an acebuco, you know, is different than a fucking eggplant parmesan, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, but, but there are a lot of Italian restaurants in America that would charge 15 or 20 bucks for a plate of pasta. Yeah. That's not all that expensive not in enough the ingredients. good Italian here. But that's a besides the point. So the Sporkful is available. You can listen to it on iTunes and WNYC. And yeah, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. You feel good about what we did here? I feel really good about it. Thanks, Dan. It was always nice to see you. And uh, you know that when I when I, when I mean to you, uh, I, I, it's, it's all in good fun for the most part. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See that? That was fun. I like seeing Dan. I like Dan's laugh. You know, he's got an award-winning laugh. Let's get on to uh, to Clark Gregg. I got kind of I was sort of fascinated with Clark Gregg. You know, that's why he's on the show. Like I did see him around. I'm like, I like that guy. I like that guy. What's that guy about? So now we can find out. Uh, Clark is uh, is on Marvel's Agent of Shield. Uh, which airs Tuesday nights on ABC. Next week is the season finale. This is me and Clark Gregg. So you're one of those guys, man. You're one of those guys where you... <laughs> Jesus. That could be nine different categories. No, it's a good... Ca- the, the category <laughs> I have... Sociopaths? Which, no. Which one of No, the, the, you're one of those guys where you're watching a movie or TV show and you go, hey, there's that guy. Mm-hmm. That's that guy. He's in this thing, too. Oh, uh, yeah. And now he's not funny. He's serious and scary in this one. Oh, I hope that was one of the ones where I wasn't supposed to be funny. No, no, no. You were so, like, you can do, you can do fucking uh, everything. You're like a real, like, working class actor guy. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. And I just talking to somebody uh, recently who said, like, there aren't those guys anymore. I'm like, no, there's a few of them. I think it was actually Rockwell, who you directed. I, po- I, I love po- that guy. Great guy. Great guy. I just talked to him a few days ago. Yeah, sneakily one of the great actors. Uh-huh. I mean, not that sneakily, but I think one of the truly towering. Yeah, and it's a, it's an interesting thing about him where you, you're like, uh, you know, he decides against doing projects that, you know, won't necessarily represent him well, even though there's some big bread involved. Like, I think he could have been a huge movie star. Yeah, me too. He's just too interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right like every but he's he's uh, he's become a friend i've known him a long time and, and you directed him right i directed him a couple of times i direct, we did a play together years ago and what play <laughs> it was a play called unidentified human remains in new york and the true nature of love it's a long title oh sorry it was in new york it was a canadian import via chicago uh-huh and I think everyone else in the cast had been in it in Chicago, uh-huh. except for Sam and I. Uh-huh. They lost a couple of people or replaced them, I don't know, in Sam and I. So you guys were acting together. We were acting together. Mm-hmm. We what both, year are we talking? We, we, it was the, called The Naked Play. Mm-hmm. Everybody was naked on stage. You did that? Uh, I think <laughs> the pitch was my character turned out to be a serial killer, uh-huh. one of those guys. Yeah. And uh, 
so they said you you're not naked. <laughs> you got it's off. It's our first hint that this guy's got some things he's hiding. You're the only like, not naked guy. Okay, <laughs> I know that theater. It's damn cold, and this is winter, so I'm I'm not bummed. <laughs> Which Everybody, theater? Which theater? The Orpheum on Second uh, Avenue. Uh-huh. It was two blocks from my house, and I was still late sometimes. Mm. Although the the director was uh, a bit a bit of a a drinker mm-hmm. and a bit of a lech, mm-hmm. and he at a certain point he decided that. He'd made a terrible mistake suggesting that I could keep my clothes on. He said, darling, darling, we need to see more of your cock. And I was like, hey, Derek, pal, we had a deal going in here. No cock. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So that was, a, that was a life in theater. What year was that? Boy, let me try to do the math on that one. That's got to be 89... Yeah, eighty nine, ninety. So before like that. that was before uh, before anything, right? That was right at the beginning for you, basically. Yeah, I'd done a couple of jobs in New York uh, with a theater company I helped f- form called the Atlantic with Mamet, Mamet and Macy. Yeah, Mamet and Macy. Yeah, you helped form and that. Felicity Huffman. I did. They really formed it more than any of us. So let's go back though. Where'd you come from? How'd you get into this racket? Where'd you Where'd you grow up? My dad is a professor and an Episcopalian clergyman. And Episcopalian, that's a, that's not a hard liner, right? No, it's kind of waspy, post-Catholic, uh-huh. shares a lot of the traits of that liturgy, but it's very, uh-huh. hey man, it's okay. Oh yeah? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. No blood, it's okay. Yeah. It's all good. Is and, there um, hell? Um, sure, they talk about it. In that tone? Nobody's yeah, too that. concerned about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> How are we going to hell? We're in Volvos. <laughs> um, so you, where'd you, but where were you, where'd you grow so up? So he was, him? um, he's, when I was, we moved around a lot. It's the short answer. He was, really? Uh, when I, the first thing I remember, I was born in, uh, Cambridge because he was doing grad school in, at Harvard and, uh, at Harvard Divinity? Um, I think so, yeah. That's nice. Pretty. Yes, yeah, pretty. Yeah I, yeah. I mean, I was tiny. And then he was the chaplain at St. George's Where's prep that? school in, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, really? Fancy. And then he went to Brown for some more grad school. So we moved to Providence. This is high level shit. This is high-level Episcopalianism. Yes, I was a faculty <laughs> rat uh-huh. <laughs> kid yeah. at a lot of nice schools. Yeah. And uh, we're via Penn, uh, a seminary at Northwestern he taught at in Chicago, and then- uh, Good cities, man. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Raleigh? Chapel Hill. Close. Chapel Hill to nice. live because he taught at Duke. Wow, that's mm-hmm. pretty. The only the only one that was a little questionable is Rhode Island. Uh the, where Brown is. Isn't Brown in Rhode Island? Yeah, Providence. Yeah, it's a rough town. It's gotten nicer. Okay. I mean, 20 years ago when I was there, I thought, hey, this is nicer. Oh. Um, well, yeah. I, I, all I know is my car got stolen there once, and I, I've never felt the same about it. It could have happened anywhere, but it no, happened there. No, that can there. color your perception sure. of the town. Sure. No, definitely. There's a lot of things that do, and that's pretty high on the list. Yeah. yeah. Car stolen, injured. Those yeah. two things. What, when you were doing a stand-up gig? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was doing stand-up gig. What's the comedy place called in Providence? Back then, it yeah. was called Periwinkles. Periwinkles was in like an old, it was in Davio Square, which I, I can't believe I'm remembering this because I don't remember shit. You don't go back there anymore. No, I haven't been there in decades, <laughs> but it had all kinds of paintings on the wall of uh, these comics and it was, in a, it was in a mall and it was a pretty good comedy room, but I remember I, I left that, I, I don't know, I think I got too fucked up and what happened was uh, I, I, I went back home. Like I left my car to go get it the next day, so I didn't get in trouble. You yeah. know, I was, I was living in Boston, mm-hmm. and I came back and there was no car and it wasn't towed. It was gone. It was stolen. Kind of my fault. I know that feeling. I was upset about the jacket that was in the car more than the actual car. Exactly. 
<laughs> you know that feeling? Yeah. Were you a booze guy? I was. Oh, yeah? I was, no. I mean, I was booze to get to the place where I could rationalize the drugs. Oh. Do you know what that? I mean? What it was, was a launching drug? pad. All of them. Really? Pretty much. When did that start? Before the acting? Yes, yes. It's the miracle the acting ever happened. Yeah? I was functional. Yeah. I was very functional. You managed. Managed. Yeah. For a long time. And got up. A long you knew time exactly ago, I got how much out. weed that you had to smoke. I didn't, and... No, I didn't like weed. No, you didn't like weed. Booze, yeah, there and, you go. booze and drugs. And dr- booze and drugs. Hardcore. Weed, weed made me really paranoid. Oh, yeah? How long you got? 12 and a half. Oh, yeah? 12 and a half years. I got 16. Good for you. Isn't that fucking crazy? It's nuts. I can't believe I... There's like... <laughs> They have pot now that's like so uh, beautiful <laughs> that I never Oh, uh, do you miss that? No, I miss pot. I don't see, I see those those stores when everyone's so gleefully yeah. getting their pharmaceutical and it's just, I'm like, oh, thank God. That wasn't your I can thing. just imagine how meth, it was just acid yeah. and marijuana Ooh. were the same to me. Wow. Acid. You're an acid guy. Like, no, no. I, that scared the crap out of me too, oh, except oh. a couple of times that were really amazing. Yeah, me too. Right? <laughs> there was like there was like four trips. Two of them were good. Yeah. The other two, I was quite panicked, and I didn't know if my friends liked me. Right. <laughs> Every. You oh, know yeah. when when you're tripping and everything turns on I, you. I think I was. I think I got a hold of that dose. <laughs> same, same sheet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're running around doing uh, doing ac- uh, doing academia with your dad. You, you have other siblings. Yeah, I'm the oldest of four. Wow. So how old are you? My age? 54 uh, last weekend. Is it scary or is it good for you? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about... What? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, a, I, it's funny. The I had a couple of moments this weekend on my 54th birthday where I went... Okay, Happy birthday. This is getting a little scary. Right. Right. You're looking... This yeah. is getting... These are big numbers. They're big numbers and you start hearing about buddies who are like, yeah, I'm sick. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Guys are going down. People going down lately. Yeah, yeah I know, dude. They're a little older than us. But, I know. But it's still- it's Not little, all of them. No, I know. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you manage that being, uh, being a progeny of clergy? Do you, do you have a, a functioning spiritual system in place that enables you to transcend the, the, the terrorizing fear of mortality? It's, um, no. Um, <laughs> It's it's very taped together. Yeah, yeah, I find it from a lot of sources. Yeah, um, you I, know what I do? I don't think about it. You don't? I try not to. I don't believe you. No, I can't handle it. You <laughs> so know what I think about the it? Dread? You have a dread shield? No, I, I I put my dread onto other things. I'm very good at dreading the mundane. Oh, you do the dread channeling? Sure. Dread channeling. Dread uh, deflection. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm going to try that. It's good. It's good. Just move the dread of mortality onto like, ah, oh, fuck, I got to get up. You know, like, or yeah. you know, I got to do a thing. I, I don't know. I, I try not to, uh, I try to think about it. When it creeps up on me is is when I'm falling asleep. I'm just laying there and there's that moment where where I go like, am I going to wake up? Am I going to? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's when it, that's when it hits me. It's oh, like I start the, uh, to go to sleep and I think, I really shouldn't be wasting this time. There's not that much left. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, you sleep less when you're older. Do you notice that? I know this from last night. This is why I made you just make me some coffee because I just did Woke not, up? not- I didn't pull off the sleeping so good last night. Me neither, buddy. So we're both a little groggy. We're having coffee. We're talking about death 10 minutes in. It's already we great. Don't, we don't mess around. <laughs> I was thinking about this anyway. There's it something kind of freeing about it. No, there is. I, I don't, you know, I don't- um, I don't know what to do with it, really, you know, because I think that life is good mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I, I, things are going pretty well for me, but, but it's hard for me not to get, 
to think it's some kind of jip in some way. Like, you know, right when you get good, you know what I mean? Like, look at yourself. You're working. You got, you know, recurring roles on television on The Shield, right? I feel great. Right. And you're doing these big movies, the Iron Man movies. People know you as the guy. And then, you know, you feel great about everything. And then you're like, well, this shit, I want this to go on for a while. Wait, right. wait, wait. Why is it? Why is it right now? Why couldn't? Uh, why couldn't I? I have the, the, the dexterity in the body of a twenty-year-old. But I, I guess that's stupid. I don't ever think I want to go back. I think I'm better off now. No, I, I, I don't. It took me a long enough time to arrive at places like a happy marriage. Oh yeah, and having a kid and working is consistently. That, mm-hmm. that I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're 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 old enough and humbled enough to appreciate it. I know. They didn't really think any of this stuff was going to happen. Ah, I man. definitely kind of pu- looked into the abyss of. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I'm no. going to be parking cars for somebody. Really? Into my into my fifties. When'd you get married? Uh, it'll be fifteen years this summer. Wow. So you were like late thirties. Yeah, late thirties. That's not bad. No, it's good. Yeah. I thought of it that way. Like, yeah, yeah, this is the right okay, time. Good. I've been out there, you know. Yeah, I've, I've done it. enough seasons. I'm really ready to quit. <laughs> and uh, and also, if you wait till later, you think, well, this is finite. I mean, I, I don't think I could uh, actually be with somebody for 50 years without them wanting to kill me. But I feel like I could remain tolerable and tolerant mm-hmm. for the finite period of like 30, 40 years. Right. And you married an actress. Yes. With an actor father. Indeed. Jennifer Gray and her father, Joel Gray. Uh, Jews. Top Jewish. notch, yeah. Top You're, notch. I, yeah, they have brought me into the fold. I yeah, would say. yeah. You, were, yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of Jewishness. I, I know. I come from Jews. Do you? Yeah, sure. So is that exciting? Being a, an Episcopalian wasp now being integrated into a a very emotional, I imagine, and talkative bunch. <laughs> you know, as I said, I had really. Uh, gotten involved with David Mamet and a theater company <laughs> in New York and the theater community in New sure. York for 20 years. Right. So no, it felt like kind of, ah, uh, I'm home. Right. Very early on, my wife said, I'm going to Temple for high holidays. I really want you to come. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I mean, I have outsider problems. <laughs> yeah. The weird thing is, even when I was at Episcopal churches, I always felt like a freakish outsider. Right. So it's going to be even more upsetting to feel like I don't belong at your temple. <laughs> but then I found I really dug what the rabbi had to say, and now I go by myself. I'm like, honey, do you want to go with me? I'm going to shul. Oh, really? Yeah. And she says, no, no. Just I'm... on a Friday? Saturday. Oh, you go on Saturday morning? Torah study in the morning. Really? Yeah. It, now, but you didn't, uh, you didn't uh, convert. <laughs> You just go. I didn't. I mentioned it to this rabbi. I yeah. said, I feel like I kind of want to, you know, you say, on the one hand, he said, you know, it's like water. Just wade in, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh-huh. And probably 10 years into doing this, I said, Do you, I feel like I had to maybe, you know, talk about making this official. Yeah. You know, I feel like if I really want to be yeah. committed to something. Yeah. And he said, you know, you've been coming for years. So <laughs> I feel like you're already Jewish. Really? And I was like, I feel like I'm Jewish. Right. You right. Know, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. And he t- it's still something uh, I'm talking about. I really, but if I do something, I feel like I I tend to be kind of all in. I want to. Well, I just would. I would. I would really want to get some Hebrew down. You yeah. know. I. You're not. You're not going to use it. It's like algebra. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I already know so many songs and prayers. Right. Phonetically. Sure. Well, that's about. But all I'd like you're to know get. what I'm saying. Really. I mean, I I did that for my bar mitzvah, and I learned all the songs, and I can I can maybe read some Hebrew yeah. now, but I couldn't translate it for you. Oh, really? Yeah, it goes no. away. 
it never was there. I mean, okay, you, you talked me out of it. I'm yeah. not going to do a bar mitzvah. Ahead, I watched my daughter's bar mitzvah. And she was very impressive. No, I don't like that she just lapped me. Oh no, but you can do it. You can do it. <laughs> did you yeah. see a serious man? I did. Have you ever auditioned for the Coens? I have. Yeah, I have once or twice. I did a play with Ethan Cohen a couple of years ago that he wrote uh-huh. uh, for Atlantic in New York, and it was it was called Happy Hour. Uh huh. And uh, it was three one X, and I thought it was so funny. And people didn't laugh that much. I thought it was an un. I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever read. Theater's tricky, isn't it? I mean, it's in terms lot. of the audience. I mean, who are you really playing for? Like, I've got I've gone to see some recent theater, and uh, it's still a pretty old crew that's going to see it on a regular basis. It's yeah. hard to pull. Uh, you know, like you're you're really playing for old, uh, you know, New York City. Some intellectual, some people are just on the subscription. You, you know, like, yeah. who, who's it really going out to? It's a funny balance, too, because this was 3-1-X, and the first one was kind of terrifying. And, yeah. And about the a guy who was having a nervous breakdown. And I'm not sure people could really work their way back. Oh, really? To the tone of ours at the third, with the third one, which oh, was so a little sillier. They were all different? They weren't all Coens? They, all were, they were all three plays by Ethan. He's a terrific playwright. But he just decided to put the... The troubling one first to see if the others could follow? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I did audition for a couple of their movies, and I was, I've was i had this thing where when it's somebody that I'm truly a, a reverent fan of, yeah. not always, yeah. but I, I can choke. Right. Oh, really? <laughs> I think like the worst auditions no kidding. I maybe have ever done yeah. for the people I admired the most, and I would have to put... Joel and Ethan at the top of them. Oh man, yeah. yeah it's a. It, and it, how does that manifest itself when you choke? You, you know, you do your preparation and then you just get in there and you're like, oh fuck, there's. It's Ethan. a funny thing. There's so many variables. I, I, I don't. I'm not a big baseball fan, but mm-hmm. it's like you go up to the plate and you think you really know what you're doing. You hit the ball pretty often. Yeah. And you stand up there, but you just never know what's going to be coming at you. You right. never know how the room's going to feel that day. Right. And, right. Some days you're like, wow, I, I kind of felt crappy, but they really seem to be eating that up. And other days you're just feeling really good. And the next thing you know, you're having an out-of-body experience where That's you're behind yourself in the room watching yourself and you get prickles on your neck. Yeah, and you just the guy watching you who is you is saying like, we gotta go. This, this is not I did good. it. I did it once. I did it. for. Uh, I walked. I said, I, this is just not happening today. I got to go. Really? And I just left. Did you get that part? No. <laughs> no, no, no. No, the guy looks grateful, frankly. <laughs> oh, good. Was it for a comedy? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> wait, wait, I want to, before we get away from it, what is it about Torah study? What is it about the Torah in general that compels you? Um, because you're a guy that grew up in this. I mean, did you, did you yeah, study? Yeah, it's a lot of the same stories I listened to. Mm-hmm. From your father and from Episcopalian Church? Yeah, Old Testament stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Old Testament. You hear the Old Testament stuff. Sure. A little bit more of the focus on the New Testament. Right. I guess uh, I listened to this this rabbi, and I, of course I was drawn to him immediately because his name's uh, Rabbi Mordecai Finley. Mm-hmm. So he's comes from Irish people who are- Is that true? Jews. Yeah, it's true. He's, a, he's an amazing rabbi, actually. And uh, Reform, he, conservative? A, a blend, I'm, I'm told. I don't have a lot to compare it to. Right. But there are elements of- I believe Hasidic traditions that he likes, but it's very reform in terms of so he's integrating. Kind of, yeah, is he a young guy? Um, I, I'll say yes, but I think he's about five years older than me. So right. no. Yeah. Um, 
But it's and, not the Reconstructionist Jews, the the sort of hipster Jews, is it? No. Not that it matters. It's, no. In fact, I, I would say that he's married to a wonderful Israeli woman, and uh-huh. I think politically more conservative than I am. Sure. Certainly. But uh, there's just a way that he's... Well, he's very, very knowledgeable about kind of social psychology yeah. and moral work on yourself uh-huh. in ways that, uh-huh. as a sober person, struck home for me. Sure, because and, you know that's the, that that we we've we we put the the sort of um, framework into ourselves, and and the beautiful thing about the program is it's you know it's it's of your understanding, so yeah. you know chip away at it how you will. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and he. For example, he would very early on. I would go to these things, and he would talk about um, Exodus and at Passover, the Jews getting out of Israel, getting out of Egypt. Yeah, and it becomes very personal. You know, you what's your Egypt? Yeah, what's the place that you get to this Red Sea, and you're like, well, this is kind of scary. Let's go back. Right, and in far more complex terms than that. And once it becomes, once all this stuff becomes an intricately examined metaphor mm-hmm. for how you become a moral person wow. in the world, suddenly it became very compelling to me. That sounds pretty good. Oh, good. I, I feel like going. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> well, I'm in. <laughs> Go. Yeah, but it's weird that uh, you know, moral moral questions are interesting because the only enemy of personal morality is rationalization on some level. That you know that you talk know, about that. Talk about that. Yeah, let me hear you say. What do you mean? Well, I mean, like it's what you negotiate. See, like there, there is, there is a personal, you know, value system that you abide by, and and if you're not beholden to uh, to real, real, uh, a real moral structure, you know, everything becomes sort of slippery. It's really what you can rationalize and what you can justify and what you can sort of, uh, you know, back burner, you know, but you know how you're going to pay for it. That that becomes something you don't think of, and certainly as an addict person. You know, you don't think about the wreckage or you don't think about it necessarily, but you have to think about that. So part of, for me, personal morality is like, you know, did I learn from my, my mistakes? You know, do I, you know, do I know, uh, you know, how to be a, a, a decent person, a, a, a righteous person in this situation? I think in some situations I do. Other ones, not so great. So few people uh, that I come across seem to carry with them a desire to find out where they went off mm-hmm. you know the in relationships whether professional or personal people when you come across someone who says you know i i've been thinking about this and i think i i think i wronged you yeah or you say to them this didn't feel good yeah and sometimes they say well i'm sorry it didn't feel good here's how what it was from my perspective and you go oh yeah yeah it's something this rabbi actually says just because it feels bad doesn't mean anything anyone did anything to you sure but sometimes they did and when yeah. you come across people who I don't know. Sometimes they're sober people. Sometimes yeah. they're not. Right. Uh, just spiritually evolved people who say, "I, I want to own this. I, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to have yeah. done that to you." Yeah, yeah. I've done a little of that. It's kind of cathartic. Very humbling. Yeah. 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 Very. Yeah. Is your old man still alive? Yeah, he is. Uh huh. He just retired a couple of years ago. From the clergy or from uh, from academia? Really, more from academia. He was the dean of the chapel at Stanford for probably fifteen, twenty years, and then really focused more on uh, writing and being a professor the last eight, six Did years. he write some books? He did. He wrote a number of them. He has a new one out. Um, and uh, Shared Stories, Rival Tellings is the title he arrived on. It used uh-huh. to be called We Have That Story Too, and it's a remarkable book Yeah, about the stories that are talked about in the Quran uh-huh. and the Torah and the Christian uh, texts. Oh, really? Because he's got kind of that level of game. Yeah, yeah. 
with art. Yeah. It just came out. It's, it's pretty great. Wow. So you grew up in the, the deep thinking. Yeah, me, no. I was, <laughs> it was happening in the house, <laughs> just not in my room. <laughs> I was reading comic books. <laughs> <laughs> deep thinking downstairs, yeah. upstairs, comics. <laughs> well, when did you start to, uh, to act? What town were you in? We were in Chapel Hill. I was, I was more kind of a, I was more of a soccer player, mm-hmm. and and yet my homeroom teacher was was the drama guy. Oh, okay. And I must have been interested in it because I kept grabbing whatever they were doing. Hey, let me read a few lines of this, Mister Curley. Yeah, yeah. And he he tortured me into auditioning for something, and I did it. Yeah. What was it? Plaza Suite by Neil Simon, where I played the Walter Matthau part at seventeen. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And funny you know, part. It was fun. Yeah. Mimsy, come out of the bathroom. That's yeah. all I remember. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it must have stuck with me because I, I then went to school in Ohio to play soccer. And when that, when I think the more the, 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 the drinking and the drugging kind of became the major. Was that where that really started? Yeah, it was intense there. Yeah. I, I had, I had, I thought I was, I don't know, Chapel Hill, North Carolina was a strange place to come of age because it's a huge college party town yeah and so we ended up at frat parties and stuff by 15, in high school 15 yeah 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 i yeah i had kind of trying to keep up with yeah crazy drinking college kids sure yeah no i i grew up with that in university of new mexico you you, know, you got the one high school buddy who knows the frat guy and then you're in is that where you're from i grew up in albuquerque albuquerque i spent yeah. some time there you did yeah on a sh- on a shoot the avengers was there oh in that big new complex that big new studio yeah there? That's nice. That wasn't there when I was growing up. Now they shoot everything there. They shoot a lot of stuff there. Yeah, families from Jersey grew up in Albuquerque, third grade through high school. I love it. Well, I liked it there. It's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, there's parts that are sad, but there's parts that are great. It's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah. So with, that was which Avengers movie? The first one. Just The Avengers. The Avengers, yeah. I was murdered in The Avengers, but it was really fun and a great script and a great yeah. time. And then uh, about uh, 10 months later, I got a call saying, you know. <laughs> these are comic books. These are comic books. <laughs> and um, we think you might not be all the way dead. And uh, so Joss Whedon and uh, this uh, great guy, Jeff Loeb, and Joss's brother, Jed Whedon, and, and his uh, really talented wife, uh, Marissa Tancheron Whedon, they uh, made a TV show. Uh, with another great writer named Jeff Bell called Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of which the whole first season kind of focused around Agent Coulson didn't really die. And then actually by the end of the season, you realize, oh, he did. Uh-huh. And they used some rather dark stuff to bring him back, and he's not oh, right he's... at all. Oh. Yeah. And that's the show you're involved that's with now? Still. It's still on? Yeah. And in what season are we in? We're shooting at the last episode of season three. That's great. Yeah. So fun. you're like heavily employed, and you have been for a while. Yeah, that, I've been playing this guy for about eight years, I think. Really? Is it New Adventures of Old Christine that long ago? Yes, I think it is. Holy shit. Is that right? 2008? No, it overlapped a little bit. Oh, okay. It overlapped a little bit. Two very different roles, man. Yeah. You're very good at comedy. You're, you know, Thank It's you. like you, you have a very unique uh, timing. You, you don't shtick. You, you know, you, you've got like a persona. Like you're one of those dudes that you seem to honor yourself in the role. You transcend the jokes. Oh, that really means a lot to me. Those are the nicest things to me you could say about someone trying to do comedy. Yeah, you you know, and it, it's quirky, and you always stand out in everything you do. It's oh. pretty insanely. Uh, it's a it's a great uh, attribute. Oh, that's really nice. I I love comedy. 
Yeah. This is more, there's less of it lately in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and I miss it a bit, but it's certainly, the plays we did in New York, they always had a, a darkness and a comedy and it's, sure. it's what I'm interested in and I certainly find in my car I'm listening to comics. Oh, are you? Yeah. On Sirius? And, yeah. Raw Dog? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know a lot of those people. I never really sure. went to comedy clubs. I didn't, I'd never heard Mitch Hedberg. Oh, For yeah. example, until I started listening, I went, this guy's incredible. Yeah, yeah, he was great. <laughs> it's a very timeless material. Yeah. But that's interesting because, you know, as funny as uh, New Adventures of Old Christine was, I mean, there is a darkness to that dynamic. I mean, the, the weird, sad relationship with the ex-husband. I mean, it is a weird relationship. And, and the fact that it was so warm... Uh, and so uh, sort of congenial uh, uh, against her, you know, her her kind of neurotic being. Uh, there w- it, it wasn't dark, but I mean... No, you're spot on. It, the, Carrie Lizer, who wrote that show, is yeah. to me a genius. And it wasn't really appreciated until after the show was over. Mm-hmm. It has many more fans now, I think, than when it was on. Uh-huh. And uh, there's an unsentimentality right. to what she does. And people are very That's calling hard. each other out all the time. Right, right. And you were always like, even in your sort of strange kind of like well-boundaried way, you always showed up for her and there was never any doubt about that. No, <laughs> no. But then she had Wanda Sykes on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to who keep I her thought in was check. amazing. Yeah. yeah There's a powerful comedy uh, acting going on on that show. Thank you. And and she's, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like, what a fucking talent. I mean, it's like, I don't, it's yeah. like beyond. She's like, Hank Aaron. I mean, she's. It is. And I don't, I don't know that people really appreciate it as much as they should. What a, what a, what a phenomenal, like timeless comic talent that woman is. Well, also think about her to go from Seinfeld, which was one very specific kind of mm-hmm. also unsentimental comedy to our show, which was a different, I don't know how you would put that. It was, it, it was a woman's show stuck on a male network in a right. way. And then to go to Veep. Yeah, Veep's a trip. And, and and still a little bit unsentimental. She's always kind of like neurotically needy and and giving in her own way. But but uh, but but sentimentality. There's not a lot of that. Fearless. Yeah. I couldn't Maybe believe that's the, word the stuff I was for. seeing. She just whatever you want to bring it. Yeah. Whatever's embarrassing or humiliating or personal. That's what I want. Yeah. That's where the funny is. Yeah. But you didn't start out in. Uh, Initially doing comedy, really, were you? Did you did you find yourself in? It feels to me that you were pretty intense, probably at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so we met, huh? <laughs> you know, the eighties in New York. I don't know. I guess so. We would. We had. A, we did our own thing. Was that where you ended up after college? College was NYU. I left that school in Ohio, and I just dropped out and moved to New York so I could go to punk clubs and listen to music. Uh huh. And uh, no, no real. You weren't pursuing the acting thing. No, I no. I just went to New York for the summer and went. Well, this is. I'm not going back to Ohio. I'm going to go to the Mud Club and watch Richard Hell again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, that was a great time. To oh, watch it was music. a great time. There was amazing music. This was already '82. Yeah. So um, Richard Hell was, uh, you know, through the through the tunnel of the James, blank generation and stuff. Yeah. But there was still a lot of great music. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'd go out to music almost every night. And and uh, I just lived there and was a guard at the Guggenheim Museum. And Really? <laughs> just hanging out in a uniform? Could, yeah, could this you no tremendous pictures? Trinidadian dude named Skelly, who yeah. I knew from some... The beginnings of hip-hop were really going on, and I liked that a lot, too. And I met some guys uh, at some of these late-night hip-hop clubs, and this guy Skelly got me a job there. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh my, and these guys, you know, the, the Guggenheim Museum is a... Sure. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a descending circular ramp. Yeah. And these other guards, would they had a, you can't really talk much, but they had a snapping system. Oh, really? To let you know when they thought someone hot was coming down. And I would see the or women that these guys thought were hot coming down. I'd see a lot of snapping. I'd be like, for real? Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm broadening my perspectives here. Did you have any relationship with the art in any way or were you just doing a job? You know, I started really just doing a job yeah. for the most part, but I fell in love with it. Yeah. I, I guarded a show, a Kandinsky show. Oh, yeah. And I just, you know, used, I don't know that I would have, you know, and hung over ADHD. I don't yeah. have it, but it might as well have been. Right. Um, uh, twenty Early 20s mindset, ever stared at anything that long. Uh-huh. And then I started to fall in love with some of this stuff. Yeah. And then the docents would talk about it and say, oh, yeah. Okay, no, that's not in there. But what this is, wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's sort of like- Oh, the, it blew me away. That was really your graduate work in a way. Yeah. Like to see, even if it's not in the- Like, because it doesn't sound like you were focused creatively, but to, to hear somebody read a painting, uh, it must have like kind of made you realize something about creativity. I had done a play or two at that mm. school when I when my soccer career was torpedoing, and uh, one, there was this English woman who was the director, and she said, "Get out of here, get out of here. You're in Central Ohio. Get out of here. Because you're York. good." And I said, "Okay, well, well, I just think she. I was kind of. I want. I want yeah. help. Something. And uh, and uh, I went to New York and dropped out, and then a year later went back and finished at NYU, and you know stumbled." through a friend who'd been in my band in Ohio. You were in a band? <laughs> I was in a band. What do you play? I played the drums pretty badly. Yeah. It's but, okay. But it was a punk band. Sure. You know, a yeah. new wave band. Did you play it badly and fast? Badly and fast and I sang. Oh, good. And they said, you know, we want you to focus on the drums, you know. You want, we want to free you up. So they brought my friend, this amazing actress who's been my one of my best friends for 30 years now, Mary McCann. And they put her in kind of I don't know what the front the front punk gear, uh -huh. and she would sing the uh -huh. Chrissy Hine songs. And uh, I, a year or two later, she showed up in New York and said, "I'm going to NYU. I yeah. heard you are too." And we kind of been together ever since uh, creatively. And she said, "I'm I'm in this cool workshop this summer with this guy Mamet and this young actor of his named Macy." So this was eighty two, eighty three. This was like eighty four. After so the there's year no off. Atlantic Theater Company yet. No, this was just a workshop through Atlanta, through NYU. And, and had he written American said, Buffalo or anything? He'd written Buffalo in Chicago. I think he was there doing the first production of Glengarry. Mm -hmm. And uh, they started a program at NYU. And she said, come on, come on. She got, I owe her everything. She got me to uh, beg and borrow my way into that workshop. And Felicity Huffman mm -hmm. was there. And, uh, so this is a young mammoth and a young Macy. Yeah. Firebrands. Method. The method is bullshit. Right. Yeah, kind of. We're, we're, we're Meisner distillers. We've already done forty plays, and we're thirty. Yeah, and uh, Meisner distillers. Yeah, so they were against the method, but pro Meisner to a certain extent. And Mamet was had his own version already. I mean, I read his books. Yeah, you know. and my and my first wife was a student there in the the late eight, uh early 90s mm -hmm. so i don't mamet was not there but you know they had the school at that time yeah and she was in it and i used to hear about it and i were you teaching there no not really i was once in a while i'd fill in for somebody right and i read the books and of course i romanticized the method and the people that came out of the method and there was something you know kind of uh 
is the word utilitarian about his approach to to acting or maybe practical in the way that practical like, they would say yeah well so but but the idea was like what my problem with it was when i would take it in just as an outsider was like he's just saying anyone can do it and then i have a problem with that yeah i think that was part of it although i would say i would say it was reactionary to a certain extent, because there that. was a kind of demagoguery going on a lot mm-hmm. at a lot of places, which is a few of you will be elected by the gods to carry this golden chalice to the mountain. Not you, you. Right. And that's part's bullshit. Of the oh, so the hierarchy of the 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 managers of the myth of the method. Well, not even the, the method. I, I've you know some of the greatest actors Esper's I've ever worked maybe, with. Yeah, Esper's more of a Meisner guy. Right. But. Uh, whatever works right i've that's, come a well, long way i've come very full circle i i take from everyone i work with well that's what everybody says ultimately and and what what i think a lot of people also don't necessarily say is that you know on some level with acting and certainly the ability to stand out on stage or on screen some of it is just a fucking gift yeah and that's just the way it is yeah and it's not even necessarily talent per se it's just like some people just they're they're alive up there and yeah. that and that's you know what you can do yeah, and they're not self-conscious. They just have this thing. Presence. Yeah. So, okay, so this is interesting to me. So you're, you're hanging out with these guys, and they're, they're revolutionaries because they're like, you know, you oh, know yeah. fuck the old New York style. We're, we're going to, this, this is how men talk. It's time for this now. Yeah. It's time for this. That was and really a, a, his thing. It was life-changing. I had been in another studio there and- Which one? Circle in the Square, which was amazing, but I had three or four different teachers all saying different stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was confused and awful. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. And to have somebody say, this is simple. Do this, do this. It's improvisatory. Figure out what you're doing. And then it's never going to be the same twice. You have to get this person to do that. And the text is gibberish. And I thought, whoa, that's very reductivist. I, I feel like I should be suffering more and believing that I'm in, you know, Moscow in 1880. And uh, and, they, they and yet it was that- freeing. It was liberating for me. Later, I would go, I need back some things right so but, they, they ultimately they said like backstory is not important just find the emotion however you're going to find it and make your choice and 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 get what you need i don't think so that's to me back what they were saying was backstory is absolutely important in terms of how you analyze what it is you're doing but you can only do one simple thing at once mm-hmm. and that is play the objective mm-hmm. and that the i think the metaphor was you know you don't have to believe that you're Fyodor right if you can you might be a little crazy right that's like the magician having to believe that he's actually producing a rabbit out of thin air right it's the audience's job to buy into that and they just were trying to break down more simply what oh interesting what you could do but then you have to make it personal to yourself so you got to go beat for beat almost no I mean in a way it was kind of the opposite which was in any given scene there's like if you watch human behavior a person wants one thing yeah it may shift based on new information, but there any in any given exchange, the two people are negotiating um, a transaction of some sort. Right. I want to get, you know, you to yeah. give me this. I want right. this per- this woman to come home. Right. And I'm going to say or do whatever I think will happen. We'll make that happen. Interesting. And then you have to put them within a within a place, especially if you're doing superhero stuff. Yeah. You know, I may not be able to convince myself that I care a ton about whether or not this person comes in from the outer planets to rescue this person. I may have to think about something that's a little closer to my family. <laughs> and you do that. Yeah. You that's got to. the job. Yeah, sure. 
So, okay. So tell me about like how you become, uh, are you a founding member? Yeah, I am. So at the beginning, you just meet these young guys who are full of fucking, you know, piss and vinegar and they're going to tear it all down. But also, I mean, that's kind of the myth around them. Also, just the most generous, kind people who really, as I said, there was this culture of this is not, this is, it's, it's worse than Navy SEAL training. Three of you will survive this. The rest of you will ring the bell. That was kind of the culture mm-hmm. of acting training in New York uh, right. and at NYU. And with a lot of love of the art, but that that is, can beat your soul down. And I don't really buy it. I feel like a lot of the people who people said, oh, that person will never make it, have become the most successful artists who came up at that time. And and sometimes it may not be in acting. It could be in, in, in directing. It could be in writing. Yeah. If you're in the culture... Sometimes you find your own way to go with yeah. the talent. And these guys were like, oh, you guys are amazing. This mm-hmm. is fantastic. You can do this. This is as good as it gets, what you just did. That simple work you just did is as good as it gets. And that was freeing. And at the end of, I don't know what, we had a semester. We had a semester at NYU. And then they sat us down at the end of it, uh, Bill and Dave, and said, uh, we are going to do a production of The Cherry Orchard at the Goodman in Chicago. Do you want to all come? It was 30 people. Everyone just packed up and moved, and we got NYU credit. We became interns at the Goodman, and we studied there for another three months. And at the end of it, they said, Do you, uh, who, wants to go to, who wants to go to Vermont and form a theater company? And we'll be on the board. And we said, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. He said, don't sit there trying to get a commercial audition. Do a bunch of plays. Starve. Yeah. So we did, you know, the ne- over the next six or seven years, we did 50 plays and starved. In Vermont. Chicago, Vermont. Chicago, then New York, and then we would go to Vermont in the summers uh-huh. and get and, out, get out of the city. And you were doing, you know, historical plays. No, I mean, mostly new American plays. Really, we hustle. I was the artistic director for a while, and I would ride around New York on a messenger bike to different agencies, trying to get whatever good plays they had that no one would produce. So this is exciting. So when did uh, so you start the company? When did they they build the? When did they take over that building over there in the twenties? Whatever that. Yeah, where was exactly that? right on Twentieth Street. Um. That's, we were, I guess it was about, it was about three or four years after we founded the company, and we'd been in Chicago and New York, and you know, being a nomadic theater company was just a dead end. Uh huh. You're always trying to rent a space, and I, there was a play that I had found when we were doing that play at Lincoln Center because I went to their associate artistic director and I said, "What are you not going to produce that's good?" And they had this amazing play called Distant Fires about a mixed const- uh, a mixed construction crew black guys and white guys in Baltimore in the 70s and then there's a they kind of get along kind of mm-hmm. and then there's a race riot in the town and they don't and it kind of tears them up as a crew and it seemed very, very archaic and then uh, I went to and I I put it up in New York and it did pretty well and I went to that theater and I and to rent it and they were losing it and it was owned by the Episcopal Church and I said <laughs> I can't believe this. My dad has been of zero help to me right. in my professional life. <laughs> dad, do you know anyone involved in the in the Episcopal Diocese of New York? And he made a call, and you know, and we somehow took over that space twenty years ago. That was you. I don't know. I mean, you know, but a you, lot of people helped, but that, that your dad showed up, huh? He really did. And, Thanks, and, Dad. And and previous to that, he was skeptical of your journey, or he uh, was. Deeply. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We, I didn't come from a family that had a tradition of the arts. You know right. what I mean? They were certainly loved the arts, but it wasn't 
Did you, was there, was it, um, how, how heated did it get in terms of his disapproval or? No, or, not like that. No. He was no, just, I think they're they usually just, just nervous. Yeah. yeah I think, what do you, you know, now that I've got a daughter, I'm sure they were like, oh, good Lord, the guy's 30. He's not making any money. Right. Right. That, that's usually what it comes down to. It's not that they're judging you or they, they're just, they, they're concerned that you're going to end up with nothing. Yeah. I think based on other stuff they knew about me from growing up, they thought this was just another way to avoid growing up. Right. The boozy kid. <laughs> yeah. The troublemaker who can't stay in school. Now he wants to be an actor. Yeah, exactly. But what about, well, that's a- that's They got a, behind it. They got behind They've been very, very supportive. Once he showed up in he a movie? He came to see that play. Oh, he did. So that, we did that play. At the Episcopal Church. We did that play at the Episcopal Church. It did well. Like. Someone said, we want to move it to a bigger theater. Were well, you were just a, a, the art director or were you in it I as well? I directed that play. Yeah. I wanted to direct that play. I wanted yeah. to see it. There wasn't a role for me, really. Right. And then I came out here to try out pilot season, which was disastrous. But I lived through the riots uh-huh. out here. And I thought, this is crazy. And all of a sudden, this play about riots was suddenly very germane. Yeah. And, uh, and I became obsessed with putting it up here because I just thought people had to see it. Yeah. And did eventually yeah. with Sam Jackson and yeah. a, a great cast. And when my dad came and saw that, because he'd been a, a civil rights worker in the 60s and uh-huh. a, a big liberal, there was something when he came to see that, I felt like he went, okay, I see what he's on about here. Oh, good. And what what about uh, what about Mamet? What, now, working, because like, I was sort of obsessed with him as a person. He's an amazing he, person. Right. And and like, you know, he seemed to, to really sort of know, you know, like he cut a, a, a very powerful presence in the world to me somehow. And I, Very I, powerful presence. One of the greatest writers I've ever read. Right. Once I saw, I saw American Buffalo in, uh, in Boston with Pacino. I was in college. Wow. wow. And it, it changed my whole, you know, life in terms of what theater was. Cause mm-hmm. like, you know, you go through college, you see a lot of okay plays. I acted a little bit in some plays, but I wasn't in the theater school or anything. But I went to that and I was like, holy shit, just the set decoration and, 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 and just Pacino owning that character was like in the language of it. It was really the language. It's poetry. Right. And then like I sort of got into a little bit like, you know, that, you know, I saw that this was his style, that he liked to play this, this rapid fire poetic, you know, rhythm with uh, mostly male language. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I became sort of fascinated with the, it wasn't a brutality, but there was definitely a momentum to it. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, and then I started to, you know, read about him a little bit. And I thought like, well, he's overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is, but this is the vision of this guy, you know, and, and I, and, and, and it runs through all his shit. Like, I really like that fucking movie, the weird movie with uh, Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins. Oh, they, Yeah. Like, I, I like that movie because of that. There's no one really writes sort of like, you know, man shit like, you know, like Mamet does. You know, not since like, you know, Peckinpah even in movies that there was this real focus on the dynamics of men. Oh, yeah. And, well, I mean, I mean, Glenn Gary. Oh, no, exactly. Glenn Gary's like Arthur Miller levels of oh, the yeah. savagery of capitalism. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, on yeah. a soul level, like, you know, down to, right. But there's a lot of Willie Lomans in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like four. Yeah, everybody's tap dancing. <laughs> just keep from getting sucked down the drain. Yeah. So, like, what was he like as a person to work with? What did you learn directly from him? Just a work ethic or? Oh, so much. I mean, it's the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Are you guys was, still pals? Yeah, I see him I see him in Santa Monica. Oh, he's often. here? Yeah, he's here. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's... The, 
there's a reputation, you know, a kind of macho yeah. reputation that just bears very little resemblance to the guy that right. I know who's right. been this visionary, generous mentor, uh-huh. teacher. I mean, uh-huh. all I, I ran the theater and he was on the board and all I, I would go to have lunch with him to talk about the plays we were going to do and I couldn't make a sentence. Yeah. I would be so nervous and years later, he put me in a couple of his movies and stayed in Maine or Spartan and gave me really some of my first breaks uh-huh. as an actor. Yeah. And uh, stayed in Maine. That was a big cast, man. That was some, that was really fun. <laughs> it was a fun movie. Yeah. It was one of his better ones, I thought. Really funny. Yeah. Yeah. He directed that. Yeah. So you start, you know, but you start doing movies. You came out here for pilot season, but you were mostly a theater guy, a theater director and a theater actor. Yeah. For a long time. Yeah. You did a lot of shit in, like on 10, stage. 10, 11 years. What do you think is the importance of theater? You do the whole story every night. If it's slow or if it's not grabbing them, you feel it. Yeah. Like you hear the chairs start to creak. You hear people coughing. You learn yeah. how to... You know, do the fast parts fast and the slow parts slow. And and you, you know, you also learn when you're getting stale. Yeah. If you just, if you just kind of, I know how to do some replication of this moment, uh-huh. you're going to lose people and, and you kind of... stay. You got to stay in it. You got to stay in it. People like Sam Rockwell, you know, like there's people out there who really, it's jazz. Yeah. You know, you don't know what they're going to do. You you better be ready to go with it. Right. And and when you say, you know, over your career, but like, what do you think it means culturally? What do you think the culture of theater, where where it's at or what it's supposed to do? What's the importance of it? Wow, man. You're not messing around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you hear about that because when I- No, I like it. It's good. It's a really good question. I don't, it feels in some ways in the digital age, Uh like an archaic Uh art form, which is why- I went to see Hamilton and I went, oh, cool. This guy just bought us another 30 years of relevance. Right. The theater. Uh, yeah. Um, but there, there's something immediate and live about it. Human. Human. You feel it. Did that, you have, Now, have you been going to more of it? You made it sound like- Scott No, written. I don't go here. Like, I don't really go much. Yeah. But every time I go, especially a musical, in musicals, I immediately start crying for reasons I don't even know. Just to I, see me that- Me too. It's I weird. wouldn't even have thought of myself as a musical person. Right. I I kind of avoided them. They were the other gang. Right. In New York. Yeah. But then my wife and her family, they're musical people. They Joel are. Gray. Sure. And I started to go see musicals with her and uh, sobbing. Yeah. Just And it's supposed to be happy. It's just, it, There's an elation to it. So many people singing. There's a vulnerability to singing and dancing that I can't even... I, I don't even know what it does to me, but I, I'm literally like choked up the entire time. Uh, oh, good. I thought it was me. I no, it was just <laughs> me. I was like, I can't believe this. I'm a musical. It's a direct main line right to your soul. It is. When what they're doing in the story matches the chords uh-huh. that you're hearing and maybe there's a dynamic. Uh-huh. Yeah. it's in a tap, If it's good, it taps right in. Uh. But like, uh, you know, like I know that 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 it's supposed to serve that purpose because like I get hung up on the the sort of community relevance of theater, you know, that, you know, when you have community theater, like that theater was supposed to be important. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason it is important is because of that that very visceral human element that there's there there there's a, a, a natural uh, humility to the event. There's a connectiveness to the event and there's the possibility of, uh, of of I don't know what, but you, you can feel it living and breathing in front of you because it's right there. You can hear the floorboards. You know, there there's something about telling stories like that that is irreplaceable. Well, you know, I, I sense that, and just from listening to your podcast, you can probably think of the four or five best concerts you ever saw. Probably, 
and I can and, and, and when you think of them, it gives you chills. Yeah, and I can do that about a couple of concerts that I saw, CBGBs, yeah. a couple other places. Right, and I can also think of the four or five evenings in the theater when I saw something just crack it all open. Yeah, in a big group. Yeah, and as you say that, I think, oh no, I used to have that in some movie theaters too. Right, but those are maybe maybe we're all just going to end up in these weird cocoons well, i think that's the plan i mean that seems to be the the solution to all the problems is just make people stay at home you don't have to shop anymore no. everything just comes right to the house we're putting ourselves in those matrix batteries yeah it, we are kind of <laughs> yeah in the little cocoons yeah it, it is it, it's sort of it is disturbing but there but now there's this weird craving for something authentic like i and i feel like you know when i go see these plays that annie baker wrote or, and i'm looking and stephen caram's play that that there, it, it really is just about, you know, finding the pulse of it again and bringing people out. People will come. Yeah. You know, you just have to figure out how to get them there because they, they, they know when they're complacent and they know, you know, when they're deadening. Even when you're locked in your computer. I mean, I don't know anybody who, ha who doesn't go like, I'm on my phone too much. I mean, we know. We know. <laughs> we know, man. We do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, why can't I put this down right now? Yeah, it's I don't like, even want to be looking at this. Yeah, it's, it's If I add up the amount of time I spent on this versus how much I wrote this week, like I'm writing something, right? it would yeah. have really upset me. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but I think that, 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 that because we know, you know, there's hope. So when do you feel like you really, uh, you know, you had your big break in, uh, in movies? When did you feel like uh, on screen you really did I know did it's something? coming any moment. No. no. I, I it's a good question. I don't know. Um cuz you've done a lot of movies and you've been a lot of you've had a lot of smaller parts and you have some of them, you know, probably pretty small, right? I did a lot of smaller stuff. A, a wonderful guy, another playwright I knew in New York, Paul White's took a shot on me in a movie called In Good Company. I love that movie. And uh, I fucking love that movie. It's a really good movie. About that's what He Topher, had to fight for me. Topher Grace, Topher and, Grace and, and Dennis Quaid and yeah. Scarlett I love that movie. Like I saw it, and I'm like, what, what, "How come more people don't know about this movie?" It's I such a, it was a sweet, good, tight yeah. movie. And so I played their kind of, I played their kind of dickish young boss, yeah, of Topher Grace, and yeah. uh, it was a good, really good part, really well written part. You were really good in that. He fought it's for me. Funny, you yeah. know what I mean? He's like, you have to go do a screen test. You got to, yeah. They, they, they don't want to. They don't want to make this happen. We're going to make this happen. And so I had, was lucky. I had somebody fight for me a little bit. And he found the funny in that thing. Uh, thank you. I, I and then um. Another pal of mine, a writer, Bill Rubel, got me a gig on uh, Will and Grace, mm -hmm. and uh, and it was one episode, and I had so much fun doing it, acting with Deborah Messing and Sean Hayes and these guys, and uh, really funny writing, and Carrie Lizer, who created, um, but this guy just got me the job, Bill uh -huh. Rubel, yeah. playwright friend of mine from New York, yeah, Atlantic guy, yeah, and um, Carrie Lizer was another writer on that show and she was doing New Adventures of Old Christine. Right. And she remembered me from that and she got me that job. So people, you know, people look out for me. Show yeah. business. Yeah, show business. But you had the goods. <laughs> you got the goods, man. So and when, now, yeah. how would you like it? Because now like with all, now that I know you had all this experience directing, you know, plays and, and you know, and then I see that you, you adapted and directed Choke, which was a, a, a fun movie, almost uh, reminiscent of like Joseph Heller, uh, like of the Catch Twenty Two and like that that type of seventies sort of carnal knowledge surrealism like a lot of weird. I just watched Carnal Knowledge again. Uh huh. My God, that's a good movie. Oh God, it's so good. Mike Nichols, I'm so sad about. Right, like Mike Nichols movies oh, exactly. Those brilliant. two movies, Catch Twenty Two and Carnal Knowledge, were really something. Yeah. 
and they i think they probably both hold up pretty good you know, like he really committed to like his uh his interpretation of a fellini-esque trip through those things Carl, i haven't man. seen catch 22 in a while but i i couldn't remember everything that happened in carnal knowledge so we rented it again recently now this is it's just it's deep yeah it is hilarious disturbing, disturbing. so but like I, I felt like some of that kind of the the insanity of, of that made its way into choke i mean that's a pretty crazy choke is a, a great book yes. a great really dark out there book yeah by chuck palanick and i thought fight club was an astonishing book pretty and good movie too pretty great movie yeah. and uh but I thought this guy's onto a kind of satire I'm not seeing anywhere. Yeah. And I had I'd come out here and not gotten any work as an actor and and I had directed that play. And one of the agents uh, at my agency said, you know The Riot play. The Riot play, yeah. Justin Fire said, you know, you should try to make a movie. And I said, Okay, I would like I I, I want to do that. How do I do that? And they said, Well you write a script that's so good they'll overlook the tremendous liability of having you attached as director. <laughs> Good like, advice. Okay, good. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I and I started writing, and I almost got something made. And then they hired me to write. You this. optioned it from Chuck. How'd you do it? Did, well, were you in contact with him? The first thing I wrote, I wrote as a job for DreamWorks, and it became this movie, What Lies Beneath. Right. Lucky, right out of the gate. Big movie. That's a big, big movie. thriller. Big yeah. thriller. And then people sent me this. They said, "Would you adapt this book? Mm -hmm. It's really different. It's about oh, so a someone else sex addicted right. colonial theme park worker." Yeah. Well, they kind of had. Right. And I said, and I read it, and I went, oh. Fun book. This is, I, I connect with this guy who's kind of overly sexualized but has terrible intimacy issues for some reason. And um, Yeah, I know that guy. And you know that guy? Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, I, I optioned it for me, mm -hmm. and it took me a couple of years, but uh, we got it made. And I called Sam Rockwell, my pal from The Naked Play. Yeah. He said, hey, you didn't mind being naked in this play. Yeah. I'm going to make you naked in a movie. Yeah. And he was in. And he was in. Yeah. He's game. He's very for cool. It's a shit. really complex, difficult role. And God, yeah, this is Sam in a nutshell. He's like, oh, man, this is Hamlet. Yeah. He finds the thing in there. <laughs> it's just given an amazing performance. Yeah. So you've really, you, you know, you've really sort of traveled all the routes in, in not just show business, but as an actor. And, and, and like you, you come from a, you know, real grounded tradition of like, you know, knowing your craft and being a stage director and then like, you know, doing this other thing with a certain amount of uh, not innocence, but like it must be exciting to make a movie for the first time. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It nearly killed me, but I loved it. Yeah. And uh, it's it's an outgrowth of the same stuff of having a theater company. You know, you you'd act in one, you would do the lights on the next one. You'd yeah. direct one. And right. It's all storytelling. Well, and that's it really informs back and forth what you're doing you kind of become a better actor from directing a little and vice versa well that's it yeah that that is really what theater's about when you do when you're in it like a theater company and if you're just acting a lot of times i've said this before but you're, you're a little bit you're a song in somebody else's mixtape mm -hmm. and you kind of want to get in there and do the arrangements and write the song and see how something that you come cook up yeah out of nothing how yeah. that affects people sure yeah, and, and you're doing it. So what's the plan? I mean, Which is are, what must be what stand up's like. Well, yeah, I mean, well, stand up. You're you're you know, for me, what I'm doing, like even, like now, like I'm trying to you know do some new material, and you know, I've been shooting a TV show for six months and writing and shooting it, and the stand up, which is what I've always done, you know, was you know that's my lifeline. That's the core of what I do, whether I'm successful or not, or whether people know me or not. That's always that's been your what baseline. I've been. Yeah, that's my ground zero. 
And, uh, you know, it's like getting back up there and trying these new things. And, and I write on stage, so it's all very- No, you exciting. don't. I do. You just, you're out there talking about what you've experienced, because that's what it comes off like. Well, that's what I do, you know, and, and that's how they form. I, I don't know how else to do it. There's easier ways to do things. But, but like, I started talking about this thing that happened, and then, like, I, I've gotten very involved in long form, but, like, doing it very diligently, like- I've got to make these beats work all the way through. Like, you know, taking a story and not just like telling about my life, but, you know, what are the beats? Where can I go with it? So the challenge for me now is to take these things that become long form things, bring stuff into them, take them a direction that's surprising and and have laughs all along the way. That's how I challenge myself within the last few years. It's fairly new because I have a, a fearlessness that wasn't there as a younger man. I was just trying to get through it, and you well, know, because it's so personal. You see, it sounds like you're being very stream of consciousness. I am a lot of times. I don't so, know what you watch. Doesn't that make you feel? This uh, here are my thoughts. And what if people don't? <laughs> well, yeah, it happens, you know. But like, like as a, you know, because of the podcast and because of of you know how I think out loud on here, which is really you know, like some of the stuff I say at the beginning of the podcast stick in my brain. I'm like, I can, might be able to build that out as yeah. a stage piece. So, so it becomes a workshop here, and then I go workshop it again, you know, and find the beats. Uh-huh. But it's very exciting because I'm in it now. I've, I've been working this bit for two weeks. It's one fucking bit, and every time I do it, because I don't, I'm not restricted by a, a written thing. Yeah. Like things happen. Like I love. That's the only. That if I do an hour show, the the moment that I'll enjoy the most is like that one moment where I never said it, that never happened before. I never said that before, uh-huh. and a lot of times I won't remember it. Because when you're out there, when you're out there, you drift past, kind of. Well, yeah, I drift past it, but I, like I'm so like in, I want the audience. I want us all to be right here. Like I don't want a fourth wall situation. I I really try to create the, the same type of intimacy I create here. This is where I get my emotional needs met. Yeah, uh, you, you know, this is. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but the, you know, my relationships and the most vulnerable are going to be is talking to you or talking to an audience. It's not that my girlfriend doesn't like to hear that, but it's just the, that's, <laughs> that's what I've I've evolved into because yeah. the audience will go home, you'll leave, and then I'll be like, oh, that was that was a good relationship. Man, I don't want to lose. <laughs> but that's the exciting thing for me yeah. is to be so present that things happen on stage. And that's where I get the stuff. And things are delivered. I don't know where they come from. When people ask me about what my writing price process is, it's like I start with an idea that's funny enough and I get on stage and I wait. I keep doing it until the thing comes. And then yeah. one night out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, thank God. A year later, that bit's finally got a punchline. Oh, God. But it was funny enough, you know, without it. But now it's You're like stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a crazy way to work. But it's uh it's very exciting. That's how I do it. Yeah. So what's the plan, man? So now you know you got a family, you got a daughter, yeah, and you've got uh you know, you've got a job. Now are you are you are you gonna direct and write? Because it feels like that's what needs to happen. You know Am I wrong? every great uh every great blessing has a another side. I'm I'm busy uh twenty two episodes of network yeah. television. Yeah. It's we finish in a couple of weeks, and then I'll have about three months. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a script I wrote for somebody else that I now may be directing. Mm-hmm. There's a thing I've been writing that's something I've been working on off and on for 15 years. Oh, yeah. I leave it alone for eight years. I come back. Yeah. Uh, that's something I miss. I'm hungry for that now. But, you know. You're employed, man. But I'm employed. You got health coverage, making some good money. Insurance. Oh, it's the best. It's good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of years with no insurance. 
Well, you know, you know, it's good. You, you know, it's it's hard to find that time to to do the things that you you know, yeah, that you that are. But you know, you 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 will. Do you know what I mean? Like you, I I feel like you'll get to a point where you know you'll have the run and you'll 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 do the job with the television show and and it's going to do what it's going to do and then eventually if you're you know compulsive enough you'll be like there's there's my window. I'm compulsive enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great talking. Really to you. great talking to you, man. Thanks for coming. Thank you. That was cool. I like learning about theater. It's a new thing. Opening my heart and learning about theater, and uh, that I, I enjoyed hearing about, about the uh, the Atlantic uh, Theater Group there. Also, go check out WTFPod.com, sponsored by Squarespace. All right, yeah, I'll play a little guitar. Boomerly!